Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Greetings, listeners, detectives, and mystery solvers to this week's installment of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, one of your co-hosts, and with me ready to solve the next great mystery is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. I wish I was prepared or good at voices, (laughs) and I would attempt something, but I'm not going to. I will just say, hello, I'm glad to be here, happy to be part of the show. Thank you for having me, Benoit. (laughs) My alter ego is Benoit Blanc. (laughs) Well, this week we are discussing Ryan Johnson's second installment of the Knives Out series, one that expands the universe a bit and gives us more Benoit Blanc, as we have already shown, uh, that we didn't know we needed. Apparently we needed more of him, and we'll get more into that as the discussion goes into our spoilerific territory. This is your warning. From here on out, mysteries will be solved in the form of spoilers, so check it out before you listen. It's on Netflix, and it's ready for your entertainment, as is this conversation if you've already watched the movie. So here we go, spoilerific. Aaron, I didn't know that I needed a sequel to Knives Out. Knives Out came out a few years ago, and we're talking like original screenplay. We're talking, wow, this is this is lots of fun. This is not an IP. It has now become an IP because we have a sequel. And when it was announced, I didn't really know what to think. I enjoyed Knives Out. This is not one that I'm like always itching to watch, but it's one that I know I enjoy. Like if somebody hasn't seen it or I need a little bit of Daniel Craig when he's not James Bond, that kind of thing. It's one that I will I will pull out and enjoy. And I wanted to kind of open up the discussion by asking you a question. What did you want or expect from this kind of latest of, I guess, three are going to be in this total like trilogy of the Knives Out universe? I don't want to call it a sequel ever again. I want to squash that on this podcast right now. So I have been ranting about this since I saw the movie back in November when we screened it prior to its very sadly brief theatrical run. and. Just today, an article came out with Daniel Craig giving an interview in which he said he was pissed off that they added a Knives Out mystery to the tagline of the movie, or to the subtitle of, made it as a subtitle of the movie. He actually said, I've tried hard to make them self-contained. Honestly, I'm pissed off that we have that in the title. You know, I just want it to be called Glass Onion, like it is in the title card of the actual movie. He said, I get it. I want everyone who liked the first movie to know this is the next in the series, but also the whole appeal to me is it's a new novel off the shelf every time. But there's a gravity of a thousand suns towards serialized storytelling. I just love the way he worded that. Uh, It's right in line with his movie writing. And that's exactly how I feel about this man, because the only character that comes over from Knives Out is Benoit Blanc. And it has nothing to do with the plot of Knives Out. Zero. Like, it it literally does not make any sense. It doesn't sound like if you wanted to call it a Benoit Blanc mystery, then that would make sense, (laughs) right? But to me, this is no different than an Hercule Poirot story from Agatha Christie. And I hate the IPification of everything. I love that we are getting more and more of these like you, I did enjoy Knives Out. We had a, a blast talking about it. We both enjoyed our first time watching it. Personally, that movie has not held up as well for me. I don't really enjoy rewatching that one as much. I feel like it's a much stiffer and stuffier, mahogany, like cigar smoking version of what this is because this is bright and modern and full of tech. And, you know, the comedy is just, it's very witty and clever and, and knives out's just i don't know it's it's a lot different in its style and i just did not enjoy its mystery nearly as much i've seen glass onion twice now and i'm telling you i will rewatch this frequently this is a banger for me i could not get enough of it going through it both times i enjoyed every second and 
I think we're going to get more than three. I'm hoping. I know he has like a $400 million deal or something like that with Netflix to make these movies. It's some outrageous uh, contract that they have. So I think we may get more. Like he's said he just wants to keep making them. And I'll tell you, my reaction to this one, dude, I, I will watch these for the next two decades if Ryan wants to keep pumping them out every few years. Yeah, if if he does, he's going to run out of actors that he knows because if he keeps putting together ensemble casts of people that are not Benoit Blanc, that don't have a connection to previous entries, it's going to be like Bing Crosby having to separate his characters from Holiday Inn and White Christmas and arguing the fact that these are not sequels with each other, just like you're saying that that uh, Glass Onion is not a sequel to Knives Out. It's a continuation of Benoit Blanc. He is the quintessential connecting piece and so from here on out i will respect that it's not a sequel i'll respect that that point of view and i agree i i think the fact is it's nice to know that i don't have to go or didn't have to go into glass onion having to see knives out again in order to understand what's going on here what i will say in terms of consistency is apart from benoit blanc being the connecting actor the connecting character in these movies you have somewhat of a formula that is and can be successful so you mentioned the stiffness of knives out i would call that a subgenre of mystery and uh, puzzle box solving the whodunit if we look at agatha christie's murder on the orient express whether it's one of the originals or whether it's the the latest one that came out several years ago there's a stiffness to that and what we go into is character portrayals we go into even if we knew what the end of the the movie was going to be like we loved the little journey knives out i think felt like that but really on a more abrupt or a little bit more uh, eccentric scale and i think that is what bleeds over into glass onion is now you have a modern day setting in a world with tech with things that we understand you have the 2020 pandemic that we can all relate to i don't know that i necessarily like that I'd rather just not ignore it completely, but it doesn't need to be a plot point necessarily. But it definitely puts it in a modern day place. We don't have to look at this as like, oh, this exists somewhere in the universe of whatever. But you still have that eccentricness of these characters. You have this ensemble cast of people that come across as entertaining and you put them in stereotypical holes and they sometimes break out of those little molds. Sometimes they don't. That the same thing can be said for Knives Out, but I, I agree. I think that the approachability of a story like this, of the setting, I mean, this is a place I wanted to go. I wanted to hang out with Edward Norton on an island with a car atop the island that he couldn't drive because, of course, there's no place to drive on the island. So just display it like a pop figure on your, <laughs> on the top of your paradise, your glass onion love the sets. I love the glass. I, I love that that whole thing. So it's a beautifully shot movie. It's a beautiful, uh, beautifully filled sets. And the cast is a lot of fun. And I think those are things that are consistent with the first entry. So what I would say is that if Ryan Johnson is going to continue to do this, keep those pieces a part of each one of your entries. And so I think for sure we're going to get Benoit Blanc. I think for sure we're going to get another cast of zany characters. And we're going to get a different setting. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I'm a big fan of this kind of stories, but they can definitely get stale. And it is not easy, I don't think, to bring something fresh in a storytelling perspective, right? Like you have seen so many different versions of a murder being solved. I mean, my goodness, there are entire network television shows that pop out like 20 plus different murder situations every single season and then run for dozens of years. You know, it's crazy. So we've seen it all a lot of ways. And it kind of gets my goat a bit when someone like Ben Shapiro was a big kind of personality under fire for some tweets he sent out about this movie. I don't know if it was last night or today where he was completely criticizing it and saying how it's a poorly written story because it relies on a twin and it relies on 
dumping exposition and an explanation on you at the end. And therefore, Ryan Johnson is a terrible writer. And of course, Twitter jumped all over him, as they should, because it basically sounds like Ben Shapiro's never seen a murder mystery before, because that's that's how they go. And I just it's really tough. It's tough to figure this out and make something new and interesting. And so it's awesome what Johnson has been able to accomplish. And I think that he is able to do that now with his two films because of the casts and because of the different settings that he brings and not necessarily by just walloping us with a unique tale. And so it's less important for me that the mystery blows me away nowadays and more important for me that I just enjoy the process of getting from point A to point B. And as long as that happens and I like seeing it performed and I like the structure of how the information is revealed, then I feel satisfied. And to me, that's what makes it fresh now. And I like that about this movie. And I think that starting it off with a couple of great nods to fun little mystery modern takes like Among Us, Benoit Blanc is playing this computer video game that really took the world by storm during the pandemic where you essentially get together with friends and try to figure out who the imposter is quite literally what is going to happen once he gets to Miles Bronze Island and he's bad at it because you have to be able to to lie and and trick your friends and he's not a good liar he's that's not his role he's not built for that right he's built to figure out who is the liar not be the imposter himself and then the puzzle box like you mentioned just the design of that thing my kids and i really enjoy escape rooms and escape room type games and so for us it just felt like oh my goodness this is exactly like something we have experienced in one of the many either video game version or board game version or actual physical versions of an escape room that we have experienced. And so I liked that a lot. It, it really set the stage, I think, for what the title is. You know, it's this reference to a Beatles song and really is kind of all about how people tend to overanalyze things, assuming that there's a secret and a hidden meaning inside as if you are to peel the layers away, but it's really glass and you can see right through it and you're just making it more complex than it is, which is a very big theme for this particular murder mystery. And so I, I thought that all of those things made this fresh and gave it a, a flair that set it apart from something I'd seen before. I completely agree with you. And when I look at this movie, I think one of the things that makes it really interesting to watch is the fact that the theme of Captain Obvious being like everything's right in front of you, that Ryan Johnson is essentially saying, no, it's the guy you would expect. It's the person you would expect who did the did the deed. It's wrapped up in a, in a movie that is a puzzle box that. I believe he did this in Knives Out. He leaves you visual clues. He leaves you audio clues. All those things exist to allow you to experience the movie as somewhat as interactive as you can. Because the fact is, movies are very much a what I would call a level one interactive thing. It's, it's, it's like you being in a classroom with an instructor who's telling you, here's what's happening. Here's what's going on. And I don't know if we talked about this last week or if I talked about it with Adam a couple of a uh, few weeks ago, but you know, Bandersnatch on Netflix, this Black Mirror episode that allowed you to choose your own adventure is an intriguing concept. But when I experienced that, it became very tiresome because I didn't want to interact. I just wanted to experience what I think Ryan Johnson does really well 
in this installment in particular is allowing us the ability to watch more than once to pick up the clues to watch the movie and experience the kind of sixth sense mentality then to go back through and say okay what was the symbolism what did i see here i see glass everywhere okay that means something this means something this is important you know and and then i go back through and i watch and i go okay so what someone like ben shapiro would call a lazy writer i would call pretty ingenious the story itself is not that incredible there's not layer upon layer of nuance when it comes to the plot it doesn't have to and i think this is what ryan johnson would not apologize for which is i'm going to tell you a story a b c but i'm going to get you there by going a q r b c d back to c and maybe go all the way to z before i finally get back to the end of the movie and i think that's what he does here he uses the mystery concept the whodunit subgenre of mystery to be able to allow us to walk that journey with somebody like Benoit Blanc. And yes, for me, as a naive consumer, I enjoy the explanation. I enjoy watching Ocean's Eleven and seeing how the heist was pulled off behind the scenes and to go back. So sometimes I need a Soderbergh to kind of show me, hey, you missed this, but we're going to go and show you anyway. Ryan Johnson doesn't do that. This is where I think I kind of fall in love with The Last Jedi is that he gives us a straight up new story in the Star Wars universe, but he layers it with things that don't have to be overly complex. He uses the rules of the universe in order to help us enjoy the movie a lot more. All the rules of the whodunit are in here. These are a tribute to Agatha Christie. <laughs> I mean, heck, Angela Lansbury was on the Zoom call with Benoit Blanc playing Among Us. She's best known for what? Murder, She Wrote. An entire TV series that I now want to go revisit because I grew up watching it with my mom about a woman who does whodunits and then writes about it. You know, it's, it's so fantastic. And so I think that kind of nuance is what makes glass onion works so well for me because of the fact that it doesn't have to have that it doesn't i don't have to lean into the problems of the writing issues of the twin yeah those are obvious tropes but they're okay because they're not the thing that's driving the story i absolutely agree i do want to like real briefly mention this since you brought it up everything is a reference to ryan johnson and and when i was watching this movie the second time worried that it might not quite hold up as well like knives out didn't hold up for me but this held up incredibly well and i think one of those reasons is the level of detail in every single choice that johnson makes so when he's playing among us which is a very specific thing and also comes back later on miles braun one of the Benny paintings in his big central room is actually an among us painting that like harkens back to that scene it just i love things like that there's also a painting of him that basically looks like he's his character from fight club which is hilarious i don't know if you noticed that it's huge it's like edward norton like all jacked <laughs> and I did, it just I didn't, I didn't see that. oh my god i was dying um you should go back and look at the pictures of it and uh but anyway like in that zoom call that he's playing the game with them you have Angela Lansbury that you just mentioned. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was like the one that really threw me off. I had to look it up, but I guess he actually has done quite a bit of like fiction writing and he has focused on writing mysteries. So that was an interesting inclusion. Natasha Leone is the star of a, I believe it's on Netflix. I'm not hundred percent certain what service, but it's called Russian doll, which is a series that is a character that is stuck somewhat like in a time loop or she thinks she is trying to solve mysteries to get out of it. And then Steven Sondheim, which this is, would be his last on-screen performance of any kind. He actually was a writer on a movie called the last of Sheila from, I think it was the seventies. I actually watched it today because I had seen where Ryan Johnson had mentioned it in some interviews that it was an inspiration and it's wild. 
because in this movie that Steven Seinheim was a co-writer of, it opens with a character getting run over by a car (laughs) and then it jumps to her husband who is a Hollywood, big time Hollywood director or a producer director. And he has all these Hollywood friends and he is sending out notes to his friends and inviting them for a one week trip on his yacht named Sheila for them to reconnect. And when they get there, he gives them all an envelope and it has a role in it. Like one of them may say the thief or the murderer, things like that. And then he sets forth in creating this intricate game that they play with the intention of having them reveal their individual secrets. And eventually the goal is to, to find out who murdered his wife. Sound familiar? <laughs> like he clearly wrote this with that movie in mind. And so to have Stephen Sondheim on a Zoom call, right, playing a game with him seems like something just completely off the wall and weird, but it had a lot of meaning and it was there for a purpose. Yeah. So I wanted to read a quote that ties into that. It's from a Yahoo review. And it says, the real trick of Glass Onion is the way it asks audiences to pay careful attention to the clues, only to attach pivotal significance to the most offhanded asides. To me, I think this is another layer of a director. And so when you talk about Ryan Johnson and the criticism that he might have as a writer, I don't have the IMDb page up. I'm wondering if, did he write the screenplay? I don't know if he did or not, but he also directed. So there are, even if you made that argument, I think he serves in this capacity as a better director than he does a writer. That's fine, because if we know technically what the role of these jobs are, a director is not a writer, per se, and a writer is not a director. You can do both, and we've seen it work sometimes. We've seen it not work sometimes. I think he does a fantastic job of direction because he understands when to place what and where. And the dialogue is really entertaining. I was sort of intrigued by this concept of the disruptors, although I was a little confused. It, was a, it got a little complicated for me. But I love the back and forth. And of course, the way in which these characters deliver the lines makes it even better because you can have, for instance, a great Aaron Sorkin screenplay. But if the actors do not know how to say the lines and say them with the rhythm that he has written them on the page, they can come across as just really confusing. So you take the West Wing. There's a marathon going on. My dad and I, I was over at his house, my parents' house, and it was on. (laughs) So, you know, you got people. (laughs) I have West Wing on DVD. It's on HBO Max. It's on Netflix. I can watch it commercial free. And what do we decide to do? Well, we're just going to watch it on this network television because it's on and we're enjoying it. And we can't get enough of the fact that it's just fantastic writing. I'm not saying that Glass Onion is that. And I'm not even saying Glass Onion is really good writing. What I'm saying is Glass Onion is structured in a way and directorially in a way that is makes it really intriguing. And it's all that stuff that's layered beyond just the writing. And so if you want to make the argument that the twin trope is dumb or the omniscient journal where you get to understand the characters uh, as the twin, you're understanding what your twin sister was like, it's, yes, make that argument. But that's not all there is. In fact, the thing that attracts me to it goes beyond just those things. Those things are a means to an end. It's kind of like telling me a story that I already know but telling it to me in a different way. And that's what I'm hoping for future installments is not that we get the same rhythm. I know that we're going to get Benoit Blanc giving us the explanation at the end, but how we get there and what we discover and all the things that lead up to that, that's what I think is the most attractive about this particular type of storytelling. And Ryan Johnson as a director, I think that's what makes him successful and I hope that we get that in the future. Yeah, I, I can get that. I I personally like both sides probably equally. I, I love the writing. 
I think you're right though, pun right, pun intended, that it, it does, <laughs> you know, th- there's maybe a little bit of tightness that could have been implemented in this one in particular. Uh, I mean, I don't have it as a five-star film, so I don't quite think it's perfect, but that's that's one of the areas. But there are so many, I think, great little insight moments that I tend to overlook the totality of the script because if I get some really memorable pieces of dialogue, there's a couple that specifically came to mind. One is when uh, Birdie is talking with her assistant and the assistant that's played by Jessica Henwick, uh, Peg. And they're talking about what they're going to do when it comes to admitting what they've done with the company. And Peg says, don't worry about it. We will do what we always do. Deny, half apologize, and then go silent for a while. <laughs> and like, I-, I feel like lines like that really understand the current modern culture and present it to us in a way that we can both self-reflect on and make fun of while completely like relating to it all at once. And there's that other great line that came out of this where Benoit is talking to Bertie again, after she's explaining to him, uh, I think it's his first meeting with her and he tells her it's a dangerous thing to mistake speaking without thought for speaking the truth. And that was a huge, like great piece of dialogue to me. And so when we get those kinds of lines that have a lot of meaning behind them and and feel like genuinely powerful, thought provoking type of stuff uh, in some way, I tend to overlook the whole collection of the script when in fact, you're right. Like there's definitely some fluff and maybe makes it a little more confusing and, and twisted for the sake of complication versus because it's necessary to tie up the plot, you know, in an interesting way uh, so that it can be untied (laughs) effectively. Uh, So I I get what you're saying and directorial. Yeah. I director wise, uh, you know, top notch, top marks here. Yeah, so I would say with the writing, I don't have an issue with like it being bad. That this is not, oh gosh, it's terrible dialogue. I mean, there were several lines and several scenes where I think Edward Norton, in describing the disruptors so arrogantly, especially knowing after the fact that he doesn't know what the crap he's talking about, the fact that Benoit Blanc calls out the fact that he's making up words. It's absolutely great social commentary on how we live today, where we can say something that seems so profound on social media because it doesn't make sense. Like the way in which certain issues are complicated because of the way in which they're described. It's almost as if Ryan Johnson is saying just that, that we can say words and we can say them so complex, but if we have enough clout as a celebrity or an online presence, people are going to go, yeah, absolutely. And follow like sheep. The problem that I have, and it's not really a problem, but the challenge that I have is that he doesn't necessarily go deep dive into that. For a movie like this, I don't think he needs to, but he touches on it just enough that it's almost like he's giving you a wink to say, yeah, yeah, that's kind of how we are. This is kind of a picture of the social media world or the celebrity world or the left or right side of Hollywood or, or whatever, but not enough to kind of poke the bear or at least kind of go beyond that it's not thought-provoking to me and i don't want it to be so it's not bad but it's just enough that i kind of want it to be thought-provoking so i'm sort of in conflict because i'm enjoying this great mystery with these fun characters that are personifications maybe not of the modern day celebrity culture but it's not so much that i take it very seriously so it's almost like a miniature portrayal or a quick portrayal and then we get to the end of the movie and like hey by the way we're trying to solve a mystery here so just letting you know we're getting back to this but we're setting up these characters to kind of make a point but not a point so deep that i walk away going you know what he really did say something important about the way that we 
depict each other and the way in which we use words to describe truth when it's really not there. Is what he's saying true? On some level, yeah, he's making some great statements about the fact that we might be hiding a lot behind our big words and big ideas that we really don't know anything about. And that's what really attracts me to Edward Norton's character as Miles Braun, because Edward Norton is king when it comes to like great acting performances. And I watch him and I feel like him getting his comeuppance as a big player in the business world is a perfect sort of role for him to play because he seems like the guy that you would want to root against because the i mean I, I really felt like he was tapping into steve from the italian job you know stealing other people's ideas like oh you know what are you gonna do with your share of the money oh i'm gonna buy this and he ends up buying you know what whatever his partner was gonna buy or i'm gonna build a big you know, have a big library a giant stereo and he ends up getting those things no originality to him or even jack from the score where he feels like he's owed something even though he didn't contribute really as much as he thought to the actual crime itself both fantastic roles i love seeing him in in those types of roles and i feel like this is sort of a role that he plays where all those characters just sort of culminate into getting what's theirs which they do in those other movies but i think it's just a great kind of like just wrap up of all those those different characters and i think he just he pulls it off really well because he comes across as incredibly arrogant he is an arrogant character in the roles that he plays he is a vainglorious buffoon is what he is according there to we go. benoit blanc the language in Great. this movie yeah. i'm sorry it is just so good it is so good i want 2023 to be the year of vainglorious i'm going to use it as often as i can if i have to call myself vainglorious just to keep using it i will dead gimmick because it's a wonderful word and <laughs> i you know can't agree anymore i think i saw a great tweet the other day that said has edward norton ever played a normal character ever in his life and i <laughs> I, I was trying to think and obviously you know normal's a setting on a washer and dryer or whatever like normal's a silly word to use as a description in the first place but we all know what that meant and i think it speaks to what you're saying like he always does play pretty interestingly eccentric characters like he's never just a regular dude <laughs> he's always out there in some way and i love it and i love him for it and i think he was so perfect for this and i bought it every bit of his ego of his ultimately revealed to be as benoit also calls it his dumbness i love it he's like no it's not brilliant it's dumb <laughs> exactly. it's so dumb and i just <laughs> i just i like bust out laughing both when i watch the movie and he's so upset because he lets himself believe that this guy has pulled off something interesting and unique and that's what gets him going that's what's cool about benoit blanc right and we've seen that from his character in both films like just like most of the world's greatest detectives, whether it's Hercule Poirot or Batman or Sherlock Holmes, you know, they get energized by a challenge and by feeling like there's someone else out there smart enough to make them work and think. And so when he realizes that he's dumb, it literally like is it's more offensive to him than the fact that he tried or that he did kill somebody, I think, <laughs> honestly, <Yeah. laughs> like that's, yeah. that's what I get out of that. And the facial expression acting from uh, Edward Norton, I think is so good. If you watch him and when you get a chance to watch it a second time, I think you're really going to enjoy it even more. And I, and I say that for not just you, but everybody listening, I was able to pick up on so many details because especially when the relationship between Miles and Andy slash Helen, because we see them meet and interact at the beginning of the movie. And these things happen, but we just, we're just like, we're moving right by them. So when Andy walks up on the beach, he, Miles is greeting everybody and, and the kind of sea parts and she's the last one there. And there's this briefest of moments of where he gives a really 
surprised and utterly shocked look at her and then kind of looks around and he's like, what are you doing here? And we just keep moving in the story. But when you're watching it back and you're fully realizing what that means, like he knows in that moment that, that she's dead and that's not her. And that the whole movie at that point, like you're watching them. Johnson does an incredible job of both directing it and the actors of making those scenes feel like they don't know, but then it works perfectly once you know that they did know. <laughs> and, and, and Norton just does a ton of this with his face and with his body language in the way that he, especially when Blanc is insulting him later in the movie too. He just, and then also when he's like sitting back feeling like he's one and you know, he's leaning back on the bar or whatever while everybody's just breaking glass and he's like, go ahead, enjoy it. I just, I love the nuanced acting from him in this. It doesn't require him being over the top zany in a physical way. It's just very confined to his person, but there's a lot of eccentricity in his character that he just rings out of it uh, and makes that performance really, really good. Yeah. Watching him, especially against all these other characters who are in their own ways, eccentric Dave Batista's Duke Cody, I thought was probably one of my favorite characters because he is a caricature. <laughs> it's just funny because I, I just, I can respect Dave Batista, everything about and the role, <laughs> everything about him. The fact that you've got some dude in a speedo with a gun. <laughs> he gets his gun out. Really, Duke? Really? <laughs> <laughs> He's just so funny. <laughs> and I, Mom, I not remember. when I'm live streaming. Sorry. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that whole bit was so fantastic. And it's such a great contrast culturally to this. I don't know what, I don't know if the movie either the movie calls him this or one of the reviews calls him like a, like a man feminist, like, like a feminist, but for male, like promoting a oh, male, uh, male Liberty, uh, male liberty, but as if, as if it wasn't already this, you know, already here, but this unapologetic character on the opposite end. And I got to believe that when, when Johnson's coming up with the story and he's with his writers, he's like, we need to create a character that is basically the polar opposite of the hyper feminist. So what do we need? Well, let's get a guy named Dave, like Dave Batista, to basically like get on Twitch and live stream how great it is to be a dude and to get a really hot girl uh, that, that is his partner to be on that with him so that she can get exposure for her own brand. I mean, it's it's social media like in a nutshell. So watching him sort of go through that, I mean, he represents, I think, a level of eccentricness, but it's different than that of of miles because you're right he has this calm eccentricness to him where he, he never freaks out but the way in which he looks at someone the way in which he sort of gives that nonverbal cue is fantastic and then you see kate hudson as birdie i thought she was fantastic and i'm thinking is she channeling her inner how to lose a guy in 10 days because this is the character that she was to <laughs> to uh, to um i can't remember his name now in the movie like she was that eccentric girlfriend and just watching all these characters sort of interact contrasted against uh janelle Monet's character she's the only sane one and seeing her as andy brand playing two roles didn't quite believe her alabama accent i didn't quite you know jive with that but it was fine because it was enough of a contrast with this sort of sophisticated look and sound of her sister that that made her so charming. Like she really carries that sense of unreliable narrator for us to be able to kind of find out more about what's going on here. And I just think you need that in a cast like this. You can't have just a bunch of crazies. Because at that point, what do you get? You get the movie Clue, which is great. It's great for an hour and a half. It's not great for a series of movies of whodunits. You have to find some kind of balance. And so I thought she and Benoit really sort of anchored the what I would call the protagonist side of things or the detective side of things, whereas Norton kind of anchored the 
layers of eccentricity of these other characters who were all fantastic. But you're right. I think he really was the the pivot for, okay, if you're going to have crazy like characters, you need to find someone who can be the most stable of the eccentric characters. Yeah, no, absolutely. You've got to balance it all out for sure. And I think to some extent, you also have Leslie Odom Jr. who is not very eccentric. Uh, and, and honestly, if anybody is maybe sure. underutilized, it's him. His name is Lionel, and he is the head scientist for Miles' company. But I know you and I are both huge fans, especially going back to our love of One Night in Miami and his role in that. And I, yeah. I just felt like, I mean, and I love him in Hamilton, and I just feel like he kind of got the short end of the stick here. He he wasn't unique enough in his character. Like, well, I guess Catherine Hahn as well, maybe the two of them, but even Catherine Hahn, I felt like got a little more play, but those two were less um, big and less wild uh, of the bunch. And so they didn't get played up as much, understandably. So they were a little more on the serious side, uh, but yeah, we get, you know, Janelle Monet, I think, in a wonderful, wonderful performance, uh, flip-flopping back and forth. She doesn't have to do it in the same scenes, but because we see it, it's done in the editing, right? We it's we watch Helen in flashbacks versus kind of in real time. Um, and so we see her acting mostly like Andy for the, for the most part, but it, it is a really... Good performance. And again, I would say, much like with Norton, a lot of what she has to do is in the glances and the body language of the camera catching her reacting to the antics and the stuff that is going around in the room. And it makes it so much more rich and rewarding to watch those reactions once you know who she really is and what's going on. Uh, with her character and and I and I liked it. I mean, I thought it made sense to me the way that the story played out. It wasn't completely crazy and unbelievable. I mean, maybe the most unbelievable thing about the whole story for me was simply that this group of people randomly would have ended up friends in the same bar together in the first place. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, I I think that's the trick, right? None of us have a hard time thinking that a billionaire would have rich, crazy friends like someone in politics or someone in show business or a social media influencer and a scientist like th that's perfectly believable. It's it's how did they become friends with those people and crafting that part of the narrative that maybe is, I think, done a little more on the entertainment and laughs side than it right. is on the dramatically serious side. And it's fine. Like, it's fine with me. I enjoyed it. But you do have to just suspend some belief there. Yeah, the, the movie doesn't ask us to do that. The movie doesn't ask us to go any deeper than Johnson wants us to. And and that's when I go back to my comment about the social commentary is that he doesn't give us so much that we're left kind of contemplating some of these ideas beyond just the fact that we're thinking about Dave Batista shooting his gun in the air randomly more than anything else. So I think the introduction of these characters and how they met is more of a mechanism to just show them in really outlandish outfits, like to see Edward Norton in this like Magnolia Tom Cruise hair or American Beauty, not Magnolia. I can't remember which one it was, but just to see these characters as early friends in terms of how they look, in terms of being sort of disheveled. I mean, if if that's the case, you would ask, well, how in the world does he have the influence? Does Miles have the influence to really get these careers going? And you can explain it away as they did. Oh, yeah, he told him to start doing this and he told her to start doing that. He got her elected to, to city mayor. Yes, you can explain that. But I'm not I'm not sitting on that going, well, what kind of influence does he have? I mean, does he really have that kind of power? What's what's his deal? Ryan Johnson doesn't ask us to delve into that. He doesn't go into that much much exposition about the history of these individuals before they met Miles. That would be a different kind of movie that you're telling me. I think that would be an intriguing story is 
how would these disruptors actually meet? And this is what I think is really interesting is that Johnson has a cast of people and a potential plot to actually do something more dramatic, to get rid of the who done it, but to really, if he wanted to, take these same characters and say, all right, just for fun, I'm going to create a short film or I'm going to create a feature around these similar characters around this idea of these low lives that have got no future and they meet this incredible dude who somehow jumpstarts their career and by the end of it what we find out is that he's a farce how did he get there Hmm, that's a really interesting concept so i think when we watch this that concept is a nice little kind of shiny object that we kind of think about in the back of our heads but it's not important enough for us to be distracted by instead we're focusing on okay how do we get to the end of the mystery and how do we get to i want to go back and watch to see if miles actually put the glass <laughs> in his hand as opposed to setting it down i there are those visual cues and that's again where i think the biggest part of the rewatch is beneficial is seeing those cues how much did johnson actually tell us before we got to the end before he actually told us and i think that's the beauty of filmmaking I personally think that Christopher Nolan does it best in the most sophisticated way with his movies. If Ryan Johnson is doing it, he's doing it in a more comedic way. I don't think that Christopher Nolan could do it in a comedic way. So you're taking no. the same. <laughs> and I don't want Absolutely him to. Not. No, I don't either. <laughs> but, but there's a sophistication in the way in which you tell stories, in the way in which you unbox this mystery, that your intent matters. And if his intent was to make us laugh, then so be it. That's why I don't necessarily feel bad when I criticize Taika Watiki for the movies that he makes because I know what his intent is. And if he's going to forego drama and stakes for the sake of the easy laugh, go for it. You're a comedic writer. Do it. Don't apologize for it. It just won't be my thing that you do that, that's going to get, your, you know, get your, your thumbs up, and that's okay. Same thing with Ryan Johnson. If a guy like Shapiro doesn't like the way he writes because it is tropey and whatever, you're kind of missing the point. You're missing a, one of the many points that are in this movie, but that's fine. Have your opinion and move along. I'll just say Ryan Johnson is the best Star Wars director out there. I'm just saying it. So we'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> the only story thing that I even had a problem with from a construction point of the plot was the bullet. So the bullet hits Helen in a random spot that happens to have the diary. And that trope is one that I would love to see not used quite as much because everything else comes down to character choice and some sort of manipulation and control. And that one is just one of those, this is sheer luck. Right. Like he shot at you anywhere else outside of that three by five <laughs> sized journal and you're dead. And then and, and for it to hit this thing and perfectly stop the bullet that allows the rest of the plot to progress. And that is something that I'm kind of like, you know, like we don't need the lucky thing. Like everything else has been very smart and clever about this movie. And that was the one time where it got a little too like. Maybe he wrote himself into a, a back, you know, a hole or something. Couldn't figure out what to do there. But I would like to get rid of that personally. Uh, yeah. But overall, yeah, I, I think it's great. And I, I loved. So the social commentary of it is pretty on point. We talked about, you know, just the characterizations and stuff. And I think that everyone is because of Elon Musk having just bought Twitter and we're literally watching him kind of implode as he's trying to run it in this new way in real time. It, it's just, it's a coincidence that it happens when this movie comes out, but it's very easy to compare miles Braun to an Elon Musk because of that situation. And I love Braun's explanation that, that Johnson has written for him here. I'm going to read it real quick. Um, so when this is when he's explaining about like how he got where he is and then the dis what disruptors mean and all that. He says, 
Okay, if you want to shake things up, you start with something small. You break a norm or an idea or a convention, some little business model. But you go with things that people are kind of tired of anyway. Everybody gets excited because you're busting up something that everybody wanted broken in the first place. That's the infraction point. That's the place where you have to look within yourself and ask, am I the kind of person who will keep going? Will you break more things, break bigger things? Be willing to break the thing that nobody wants you to break. Because at that point, people are not going to be on your side. They're going to call you crazy. They're going to say you're a bully. They're going to tell you to stop. Even your partner will say you need to stop. He's talking to Andy slash Helen. Because as it turns out, nobody wants you to break the system itself. But that is what true disruption is. And that is what unites all of us. We all got to that line and crossed it. And I love that because there's so much truth in what he's saying, but there is a truth in, in the way that I think there's value personally in some of the disruption that he's referring to some of those small things. I mean, I think very simply, you kind of think something about like TV, right? Everybody, generally everybody, we're using broad generalizations here. Everybody wanted cable to go away. And be able to get their TV a la carte and just have what they wanted to have. So somebody broke that. And what has happened now? (laughs) We are at the point where now everybody's mad that that happened. And we're annoyed that we have all these different services that we have to pay for. And all of our content is spread out across these tons and tons and tons of different methods and manners in which to get it. And so you ask someone to be the person to push for these changes to happen, but then you expect them to just stop once they've changed the thing that you personally wanted them to change. And that's kind of what he's getting at is like, it's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the, I don't know, a lot of things in society to me, like a military. I just happened to just watch a really crazy movie about rogue DEA agents. And so this is on my mind, but like we build soldiers and people who are built to kill. And then we wonder why we can't just like plug and play them into society, into a desk job and expect them to be perfectly normal and content and happy with their lives and peaceful. Like the world is kind of broken in that way where it expect it wants you to do things and push boundaries. People want to see boundaries pushed, but then only up to the extent that they're only personally comfortable with. And then you have to have people that do disrupt major, bigger systems. And those people will be heroes to some and villains to other. And I mean, Braun is a great example of that and of the idea of how do billionaires become billionaires? Because I know a lot of folks who believe very strongly that no one becomes a billionaire out of like perfect... I don't know how to put it, but basically there's some nefariousness if anybody ever becomes a billionaire. Like you don't just happen upon doing that in a very legit um, manner. And Braun kind of is exemplifying that. Sure. Well, and he's, he's playing off the backs of other people's successes, taking credit for his own. And then out of his ignorance, he is putting something together that is on paper altruistic virtue signaling, but in actuality is going to just make him a ton of money without thinking about consequences. You could say that about Elon Musk. You could say that about Donald Trump. You could say that about any big name that's out there who's making a difference. And I don't want to call it a dip. When I say making a difference, that's usually used in a positive sense. I'm saying in general, when you make a difference positively or negatively, it's difficult to trust that someone has nothing but pure intentions because we're human beings. Look, even on the faith-based level, we have sin in our hearts and we're going to be folks that have some kind of ulterior motive. I mean, I love my wife, but there are days when I don't want to feel like a slave, even though I want to serve. <laughs> and so what do I do? I, in the Christianese term, I fill up the love tank. I do things in order to be able to get something else out of it. Is that bad? In the purest sense, absolutely it is, because I should want to do things out of the goodness of my heart. But look, (laughs) 
I'm not one of the people that has a Ukrainian flag in my Twitter bio. Does that mean I hate Ukraine? No, it just means that it's so far away, it doesn't concern me. And there are other things locally that I want to pour my heart and my life into. But even those things, I have to check my motives on why I do them. And so when you get to celebrity status, when you become a Braun or a Musk or whoever, you're going to get questioned, especially if you've got a ton of money. And I think it's just the nature of being human. And it, as we're seeing in this movie, it makes for great theater in the fact that we allow the distrust or the supposed nefariousness to actually be true in a sense. It's what happens when a supposed conspiracy conspiracy theory becomes an actual conspiracy, when it becomes fact three or four or five or ten years later. You get that level of like, aha, when in actuality, in a lot of cases, no, it didn't really happen that way. You just made a statement that could, in the realm of possibility, actually happen. And when it eventually does, it just proves a case that you really didn't have. So when I watch a movie like this, that commentary definitely comes out. But I think it just speaks to how, as human beings, we like the drama. And you're right. We want what we want until someone takes it farther than we want it to. And then we think that person's bad. <laughs> and the, we don't want to give up what we have. Like the people that right. are riding his coattails, his friends, they don't even like him anymore. Like they're not there because they all feel like they're really close friends anymore. Right. They all resent him. But they either he has something over them or they don't want to rock the boat because they like where they're at. And that is just the reality of the human experience is we all deal with that. We all deal with our own selfish nature in our own way. It's about us. Like, what does Duke do when he finds out that Andy is really dead? His reaction is to use it as leverage immediately to try and get on the network and, and make his own status go up. Like right. that's his first thought in how to handle that situation. So it's a real like look in a mirror for all of us. Like we don't have to be famous to act like that in our lives. We can do that in much smaller and simpler ways. And hopefully we don't. Right. But that's it's really what it's pointing out. Yeah, for sure. One more question before I'm done with my stuff, and that's really more logistics. So Netflix has got the rights to this property. And as you mentioned, back in November, they released it in the theaters for a week. I unfortunately missed the theatrical run. I think we had talked about possibly covering it, but I was gone for uh, Thanksgiving break. And I believe I've read, I could be wrong, so correct me if I am, that the third entry and potential future entries are going to follow the same formula. Release for a week and then wait a month and then go to streaming. So I'm wondering, is that smart? Because it did a decent amount at the box office. I'm wondering, just from your perspective, or maybe if you've read stuff, if you have an insider track, what's the point of this? Is this just to wet people's whistle? <laughs> or is this... Netflix just seeing kind of how things play on a big screen and potentially if they get bigger properties or have more access to these now larger IPs, are they going to start releasing more theatrical things? So I may have misspoke. I, you're right. I think that there are only confirmed trilogy in play here. I just assumed that with that much money that there was going to be more than two sequels. And I think Ryan has said specifically that he would do more. So I'm hopeful that he just keeps pumping them out after three total. But um, I think the third is definitely confirmed as going to be happening. I have not seen anything where Netflix came out by early, this early and said that the third one would be in the same model. I don't think they would say that when it hasn't even been made yet, because that's several years down the roads that they would have to make that decision. I will say. This is a very hot topic in pretty much every film critic circle or film Twitter film fan circle is what is Netflix making the right choice and everybody's got their opinions. Most people think they're not, of course. And I personally, from a consumer standpoint, I'm with you, I'm with everybody and I just don't understand the logic in not wanting this movie to be in a theaters. And 
it does so it obviously has to do with Netflix's valuation of their subscription model. And the one thing that we all don't have is a deep, clear, because Netflix is not very good with transparency, (laughs) understanding of what does withholding this movie and putting it on Netflix only do to their numbers? Does it make people renew their subscription? Does it bump them up in a way that they feel is more valuable than if they put it in theaters and let it have a box office run that made them a hundred million dollars or whatever the case may be, because it is exclusive to their platform. And it is the only way that you can get it is to buy their subscription, which they've, you know, continually raised the prices of. And obviously they have, it's been reported. They've been in some financial trouble. So my gut tells me, bud, that they are doing the thing that they believe makes them the most money. I just, I have to believe that that's their, they're doing some sort of number crunching and they're, they're seeing it on paper that they will make more money if they do it this way, because that's all that matters to them. <laughs> like it's a business. And so we look at it and we don't have that information. We just see the potential for a box office success. And we marry that to the emotional reaction of this is an incredible theatrical experience. And I want my friends and family to be able to have that because I'm telling you, I'm sad because I had such a fun, it was one of the three overall best experiences in a theater I've had all year, right? Easily, you know, take Top Gun Maverick, Avatar, maybe Barbarian because it was so wild and unexpected and Glass Onion because that communal nature of watching a story play out like this with the jokes hitting and the mystery being revealed in pieces and stuff is such a cool thing to have. Netflix doesn't care about your personal emotional experience with this movie. They just want you to pay them to watch it. Like that is the bottom line. And I think it sucks, but that's business. And so I understand that. And on some level, I guess I respect that. And it is what it is. And I just don't see it changing because this has been Netflix's model now for ever. And they have only rarely put movies out in theaters for more than the week that they are required to do to make them Oscar eligible. And it's usually not the ones that they know they need to bring in the consumer subscriptions. So I don't know. That's that's kind of where I'm at on it. I wouldn't expect it to change. Yeah, I'm I'm indifferent to it. I mean, yes, it would be great to see more movies in the theater. I don't know that I'm necessarily on board with the James Cameron, the Christopher Nolan's like, everything needs to be in the theater. I'm like, some things need to be in the theater. Some things you can watch at home. That's the nature of where we're at. And as someone who didn't see Glass Onion in the theater, the fact is, Aaron, you got to have an audience in the theater to watch in the theater to get that full experience. So as someone who goes to movies at one o'clock on a Friday afternoon to cover for the podcast, I'm probably missing another key component as opposed to going prime time on a Friday night, Saturday night when, when things are are really hopping. So you need an audience, you need the big screen. Those two components I think are, are necessary to make a movie that's supposed to be theatrically appropriate. I will say this though, as I've said before, glass onion hits for me, regardless of whether I was with 50 to a hundred people or just by myself, it was, it was good. And Kudos to Ryan Johnson for a, for a great second entry. I'm sorry, not a second entry. It's not a sequel. <laughs> a it is a second up. entry in the series. No, that's okay. You can okay. say that. Yeah, it's <laughs> okay. There we go. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us on this edition of Feeling Film. Next week, we're going to hit a movie that we were going to go to, but we didn't get a chance to get around to it. It's now on Disney+. Plus. Strange World is coming your way next week. We'll enjoy that conversation as well. Aaron, thanks for a great conversation tonight, and we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. 
A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filmed.